invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. One of the highlights of my year has been getting to study the book of Ephesians with the teens on Wednesday nights. Um, Joe asked if I could again share some of the fruits um, of this study with the rest of our church family. And so today we are going to be studying the first 14 verses of the book. Apostle Paul wrote this letter while he was imprisoned in Rome. He was probably nearing the end of his life. And uh, he wrote it to believers who lived in and around the ancient city of Ephesus, which is on the western coast of what's modern-day Turkey. Paul actually had extensive history with the believers um, in this area. He had spent um, three years preaching and teaching. Um, During his time in Ephesus, he had um, done extraordinary miracles. He had cast out demons. Um, He had boldly proclaimed the gospel both in public settings, private settings, Um, He had developed strong, close, personal relationships with the believers in the city, and he is writing to them, and he starts his letter with an exclamation of worship to God. We're going to read about how blessed be God, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Before we read, I'm going to give you a heads up what to expect. Um, I'm going to start off reading the passage. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. I'm going to make a few comments as we go. I'm going to suggest what I think is the main point of this text, and uh, then I'm going to explain it and apply it. Um, I'm going to work through this passage in three sections. Each section is going to have four points of application. Um, And then at the end, I'm going to share just a brief example of a North Korean refugee that I think will be helpful for all of us as we study this passage. So let's read Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Right here at the start, Paul identifies himself as an apostle. An apostle was a leader who was chosen by God to help establish the early church. As an apostle, Paul was God's appointed messenger, and what he writes carries divine authority. Paul didn't sign up for this. He says that God chose him. He is an apostle by the will of God. And he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Just got to clarify, when Paul says that he's writing to saints, he's not referring to some elite class. Paul right now, he's writing to ordinary Christians. Every true Christian is a saint. The word saint simply means um, a holy one, someone who's set apart, and because of the work of Jesus, everyone that Jesus saves is counted as holy and set apart to God. So he's writing to just ordinary Christians who live in and around Ephesus. He says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Paul goes from a prayer of benediction, grace to you, peace from you. He's going to transition now into a prayer of doxology. First he was praying for God's grace and his peace to go with them. And now he's going to launch into this, this fountain of praise where he's going to be praising God. And this next section, I'm going to get into it, verse 3 through 14. It's one ginormous sentence. Uh, It's really, really big. It's over 200 words long, and uh, our English translations break it up into smaller sentences to make it easier for us to read. But I just want you to know what I'm about to read from verse 3 to verse 14. This is one big sentence. It's basically Paul writing this as a nonstop fountain of praise. Like he starts, and then he just keeps on going. So let's read it. Verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And after reading such a magnificent passage, you might be thinking, wow, Paul really knew how to pray. You might also be thinking, Wow, Paul was really good at run-on sentences. This, this section, it's a bit overwhelming. Paul packs so many ideas, so many concepts that you read through it. As a Christian, I'm reading through it, I'm agreeing, I'm saying yes, yes, yes. But it's kind of hard to hang on to all of it. It's almost like, it's almost like he has this bag of diamonds and he's pouring it into your outstretched hands. Your hands are open. He's filling your hands up with diamonds. You're like, this is good. This is good. And then they start slipping through your fingers. It's like, how is it possible to hang on to all of these at the same time? And I will admit that that's how I feel attempting to preach this passage. There is so much here. It's like, that. how do you hang on to all of this? But this morning, I want you to get all of the diamonds. I want to show you their glory and their beauty and their excellence and their worth and their value for your life. But what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? Because so far, Paul hasn't told us to do anything. There's not a single command in what Paul just wrote. He's literally just gushing in his praise to God. I think the key to unlocking this passage is in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You might ask yourself, what does it mean to bless God? One writer suggests that it means to speak well of God's greatness and goodness and to really mean it from the depths of your soul. Paul, from the depths of his soul, is praising his God. Verse 3 right there announces it, and then verse 4 begins the explanation of it. Verse 4 says, just as, and then he goes into this nonstop list of reasons why God is so deserving of worship, because of all these spiritual blessings that God has given to us, has showered on us. I want to suggest that Paul right here, he's modeling something for us. He's exemplifying something. He's being an example. 
He's not telling us what to do. He's simply declaring truth, and then he's delighting in that truth. He's saying, these things are true, and they're wonderful. And in so doing, he's saying, these things are true, they're wonderful, glory to God. And by his example, he's showing us what to do, and he's showing us what to know. He's not saying outright, you need to do this, you need to know this. But if you're paying attention, you're going to catch on. Paul is literally leading by example. And I think he's demonstrating what I believe is the main point of this passage. The main point of Ephesians 1, first 14 verses, is that the natural impulse of believers is to erupt in worship to God, who out of pure love and sheer grace has showered them with every sort of spiritual blessing. All glory to God. I should qualify that this is a new natural. This is a supernatural impulse. This didn't used to be true of believers, but God has awakened something new in our hearts so that we love God. We delight in God, and something deep in us now longs to worship and praise God when we appreciate what he has done for us. This right here is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Point out earlier that verse 3 um, Verse 3 announces the praise. Verse 4 begins the explanation of the praise. But this whole passage just is punctuated with more calls for praising God. Verse 6 ends up, it says, all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12 again says, to the praise of his glory. Repeated again in verse 14, it's to the praise of his glory. The natural, or should I say the supernatural impulse of believers is to erupt in worship to God, who out of pure love and sheer grace has showered them with every sort of spiritual blessing. So all glory to God. We talk with the teens about how theology, the study of God, should always lead to doxology, the worship of God. And this right here is what Paul and the other biblical authors, they model this. I heard one pastor put it, if your theology doesn't lead to doxology, then you've actually missed the point of theology. Knowledge of God is the fuel for worship of God. And Paul demonstrates that. So here's a question. Christian, do you know what spiritual blessings God has poured out on you? Like I said, knowledge of God is the fuel for worship of God. The more I learn about who God is, what he has done for me, the more prepared I am to worship God from the depths of my soul. We're going to look at this passage in three parts. Paul organizes this passage loosely around the work of our triune God in accomplishing our salvation. The Bible reveals that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each member of the Trinity has a unique role in the gospel. God the Father planned the gospel. God the Son accomplished the gospel. God the Spirit applies the gospel. And we're going to expand on each of these as we go. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would this morning help us to grow in our knowledge and our wisdom and our spiritual understanding this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would accomplish all of your purposes as we study your word. Help me, I need it, and show us Christ. 
We pray that you would use this truth to ground and to stabilize and protect and to strengthen the members of our church. Please open the eyes of the lost to the glorious hope of Jesus in the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So number one, God the Father planned the gospel. The Father determined before creating the world to show certain sinners sovereign grace for their great good and for his great glory. God the Father planned the gospel. Father determined before creating the world to show certain sinners sovereign grace. And so for that reason, number one, praise God for giving spiritual blessings to those he saves. Verse three says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that verse right there contains the summary of the enormous sentence that Paul was writing. If I were to answer how to apply this passage to your life, I could do it in two words. Praise God. Praise God for all the spiritual blessings that he gives. So the first application of that, praise God for every spiritual blessing that he gives to those he saves. Next, praise God for choosing long ago to save certain sinners. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The word chose here refers to the doctrine of election. If you are truly saved, it is not because you chose God. It's because God chose you. First John 4.19 says that we love God because God first loved us. And this is starkly obvious in Paul's own life. Paul was actively trying to wipe out the name of Jesus. He was literally killing Christians. And Jesus said, Paul, you're mine. Jesus chose Paul. And then Paul chose Jesus. If you are a Christian, the only reason why you chose God is because he chose you first. And when does it say he chose you? It says he chose you before he even made the world. Just think about what that means. That means that before Adam and Eve ever sinned, God already had a plan in place. When they sinned, God was not surprised. He was not caught off guard. He already had planned the redemption of the human race. More personally, that means that before you were even born, God knew your name. He knew your story. He knew he was going to save you. What was he going to save you from? He's going to save you from your sin. God planned for every one of us who saved that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, even though before God my sin is repulsive and offensive, God already planned and guaranteed that the day would come when I would be as pure and as holy as Jesus himself. That plan was in place eons before I even took my first breath. Why point this out? If you miss this, if you miss this truth, you will miss one of the most notable reasons for Christian humility. I contributed nothing to my salvation. God did all of it. And he did it not because of me. He did it in spite of me. God decided long ago that he would show me grace, favor that I did not deserve for my eternal good. This is amazing grace. And I just want to pause just for a second. Because I have conversations like this sometimes. 
how do you know if you are one of the elect here, one of the ones who's chosen here, one of the people that's talked about in this passage, how do you know if you're one of this group? The way to know if you are one of the elect is by how you respond to the gospel. Do you reject it? Do you ignore it? Do you deny it? Or is there something in you that desperately hopes that this is true? Enough that, that you will call out in faith to, to Jesus to save you. I would say, do so. Turn to Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you. If you do, honestly, even if it's with your dying breath, that you are one of these undeserving recipients of God's mercy. Sometimes I have conversations with somebody and they might say, I'm not saved. I have no intention of giving my life to Jesus. Um, apparently, I must just not be one of the special chosen people. God must love you more than he loves me. God must not love me as much as he loves you. And if that is a thought that's on your mind, I just want to suggest you don't know that. You let God take care of being God, and you take responsibility for yourself. If you know that your life is in rebellion against God, then you are responsible for your actions. Repent, believe in Jesus, turn from your sin. You cannot possibly conclude that you're not one of God's elect while there is still breath in your lungs. So flee to Jesus today. So praise God for choosing long ago to save sinners, to save sinners like me. Praise God for adopting saved sinners into his family. Paul goes on, end of verse 4. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Christian, have you ever taken time to marvel at the wonder of adoption? Just want you to imagine for a moment that you are at an orphanage. And you're there, and you have one mission, you have a mission, you want to adopt one of these children. You want to adopt a needy child. So you go in and you meet a bunch of the children, and it's time for you to decide. Do you want to pick the kid with all of the problems? Who's violent? Who lies? Who's arrogant? Who's sexually perverted? Who's harsh? Who's rebellious? Who mocks you? How do you feel about taking the child who needs an insane amount of love and time and sacrifice? Do you realize that that is who God adopts every single time? God does not adopt perfect little angels. He adopts sin-ravaged beggars and delinquents like me and like you. And he does it out of love you see that in the text. Our verse numbers kind of might confuse you there, but that's one idea. In love, he predestined us for adoption. It's far too easy to breeze over this, but think about it. If God had only forgiven me, like my debt against God, wiped clean, if that's all he had done, I would be singing about it for the rest of eternity. But God has done so much more than simply not punish me. He also blesses me. He gives me himself. He gives me a spot at his table. He gives me a home and a new family. The family he's bringing me into, the father and the son, eternally existing in this 
perfect relationship of love? What's the family that I get brought into? I get brought into the family that is the source and the truest experience of love itself. That's the family that I get adopted into. Praise God, I'm a child of the king. Praise God for adopting saved sinners into his family, but praise God for blessing us in Christ with glorious grace. Then in verse 6, Paul writes that all of this, our election and our adoption is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Don't miss this. The most important thing in the world is God and his glory. And God cares most about the most important thing in the world. In other words, God cares most about his own glory. It's not arrogant, it's not selfish of him. It's reasonable, it's right, and it's good because there's nobody and nothing greater than God. And amazingly, what is glorifying to God is advantageous for us. I could put it like this. God glorifies himself by blessing us. The way God gets glory is through benefiting me. God glorifies himself through me by blessing me. How does God get glory? He gets glory by pouring out blessing on me. God gets praised for his grace because of how it benefits us. God gets praised because of his blessing on us. I hope you leave here praising God. And if you're not a Christian, I just encourage you again to look on this gracious God and call on him to save you. God the Father planned the gospel. We see God the Son accomplished the gospel. Jesus Christ spilled his blood to redeem and forgive sinners as part of his unstoppable plan to unite all things in all places under his supreme rule. So praise God for securing our blood-bought redemption. In this next section, we see that Jesus came for a very specific mission. He came to redeem us and to ultimately to rule over us. Verse 7, Paul says in him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption here refers to the payment of a ransom to reclaim something that has been taken away or is held captive. So you should ask two questions. What have we been redeemed from? What was the payment that paid for our redemption? First, what have we been redeemed from? Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Romans 6.20 says that we used to be slaves of sin. In other words, our natural spiritual condition is one of slavery. We're slaves to our own sinful desires. Let me say that a little bit more directly. Apart from Christ, you are a slave to your sinful desires. You cannot not sin. And there is nothing, nothing at all that you can do to rescue yourself. You're trapped in it. You're enslaved to it. And you're destined to pay the penalty and the consequence for your sin. But Paul, right here, is praising God because Jesus is a mighty redeemer. Jesus redeems trapped and hopeless sinners, you and me. We cannot save ourselves, but Jesus can. And he does. He shatters the chains he banishes the accuser, he rescues us, he redeems us, and he does it at a cost. What is the cost of our redemption? What does your redemption cost you? Nothing. It's free. It's a free gift of grace. It's an act of love, and it requires nothing from you, but it is not cheap. There's no such thing as cheap grace. There's no such thing as cheap redemption. 
The verse says, we have redemption through his blood. Your redemption came at the cost of Jesus' shed blood. He suffered in your place so that you would not have to. The debt had to be paid. Jesus paid it instead of you. So praise God for securing our blood-bought redemption. Also, praise God for pouring out grace-lavished forgiveness. Through his redemption, we receive, look at verse 7, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. What are trespasses? Well, just as if you go trespassing, you're walking past boundaries that you are forbidden by law to pass. When we trespass against God, we are doing things that he has forbidden. We're guilty before God, but through Jesus, we can be forgiven of all of our trespasses. Every single word, thought, done in disobedience against God can be forgiven. It's all by grace. It's like where Romans 5 says, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. In other words, God lavishes us with grace. He covers, he buries, he he completely overwhelms the quantity of our sin with his abundant, never-ending, eternal grace. Praise God. Praise God for pouring out grace-lavished forgiveness. Praise God for revealing his world-restoring plan. Paul says that God did this, verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The idea here of mystery has the idea of a, a truth that was once hidden that has now been revealed. In other words, this has always been God's plan, but generations of God's people didn't have a clue what it was going to be or what it was going to look like. It was like a planned surprise. Well, the announcement has gone public. God has made known what he is doing in the world today and what he is going to do in the world in the future. Look at the words that Paul emphasizes. God's will, God's purpose, God's plan. Everything is going according to the wisdom and insight of God's good plan, God's good will, God's good purpose. Praise God for revealing his world, restoring plan. Praise God for guaranteeing a once-for-all victory through Christ. Look at verse 10. Paul says that this plan is scheduled for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. The day will come when everything, everyone, everywhere, in heaven and everywhere on earth, all people in all places will be fully under the rule and reign of King Jesus. He will reign supreme. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's going to happen. That's the destination of human history. And if your life is not in alignment with that, then you are on the wrong side of history. Jesus is king. He will reign supreme. And one day his visible reign will be absolute and complete. As theologian Abraham Kuyper declared, there is not one square inch of the world over which Jesus does not stand and say, mine. Jesus is supreme. So God the Son accomplished the gospel. We see at the end, God the Spirit applies the gospel. The Holy Spirit opens the minds of sinners to believe the gospel and provides definite assurance of their salvation. So praise God for opening our minds to the gospel. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
How is it that hearing the gospel was enough? It was because the Holy Spirit speaks through the word of God. Romans 10 says faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you want to hear from God, go to his word and ask God to open your eyes to the truth. That was where Paul wrote that if somebody doesn't have the help of the Holy Spirit, they will be incapable of understanding the personal significance of the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. That's 1 Corinthians 2. If you truly believe the facts of the gospel, that you're a sinner, that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord of all, he died for you, that he rose from the dead in victory over sin, and that he is coming back to claim you and reign for eternity, if you believe those facts, if you truly believe those things and are making life decisions based on them, then that is God's work in you. Specifically, that's the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. So praise God for opening our minds to the gospel. Praise God for extending the covenant to Gentiles. If you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile. Gentiles were non-Jews. God had his, his people that he had set his grace upon, chosen people, the Jews, and then there was everybody else. Verse 12, Paul speaks of we who were the first to hope in Christ. He's including himself in that category. Paul is likely referring to Messianic Jews who believe that Jesus is their promised Messiah, their promised Savior, their promised King. These are men and women who related to God on the basis of the old covenant, but who are promised a new and better covenant, and they realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of that new covenant. The Gentiles, however, were enemies. They were outsiders. They had no claim in God's covenants. And yet right here, Paul is explaining that God is now doing something new in accordance with his plan, verse 10. His plan to unite everything under the supreme rule of King Jesus. His plan begins with the church as both Jews and Gentiles, who historically have been hostile to each other, enemies of each other, they are now all united under one banner, the banner of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says to the Gentiles in verse 13, in him you also believed. In him you also believed. This is awesome. Praise God for grace that extends to the nations. Praise God also for assuring um, for assuring us that we forever belong to God. Paul repeats in verses 11 through 12 several statements that he actually wrote earlier, back in verses 4 and 6. In other words, 4 and 6, 11 through 12, they actually parallel each other. He emphasizes again that God chose us in Christ, that God predestined us, and that God did so on the basis of his will. All of these ideas piled up emphasize that Christians belong forever to God. Our eternal future was permanently decided in eternity past. And not only that, Paul says that when Christians do place their faith in Jesus, they are, verse 13, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee. Paul is using two pictures here, sealed and guarantee, to describe the permanent and guaranteed nature of the Christian salvation. First picture is that of a wax seal there in verse 13. Wax is melted, it's pressed onto an envelope or parchment, creates a seal, and that seal shows that it hasn't been opened, it's authentic. To be sealed with the Holy Spirit is to be marked for heaven. It's God putting his name on you with all the authority that carries. In other words, God is saying, you're mine, I've promised to save you, I will save you, my name is at stake. 
So there's a picture of a seal, and then there's a picture of this guarantee or a down payment. Second picture there in verse 14 is that of a guarantee or a, a down payment. When you buy a house, but you're not ready to pay the full amount, you put down a deposit. It's a down payment that guarantees that the rest is coming. This was a common practice even in Paul's day. God gives us the Holy Spirit on this side of heaven to assure us that we belong forever to him. So praise God for assuring us that we belong forever to God. Praise God for promising us that the best is yet to come. Verse 14, for the Christian, the best is yet to come. Verse 14 speaks of an inheritance that we will one day possess. Right now, we have just the first portion, this deposit. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit who stirs new desires in our hearts to fight our sin, to love and serve others, to spread the gospel, to persevere in faithfulness to God. God right now is changing us from the inside out. That's the first portion that we have right now. The rest is coming later. As believers, we know that our future, we will finally and forever be free. We will be absolutely free of sin. We will be just as God destined us to be. As verse 4, it said, holy and blameless on that day when we first stand in God's direct presence. Do you get this, Christian? All of your sin will finally and ultimately and decisively be defeated and gone from your life. No more lust, no more anger, no more jealousy, no more anxiety, no more laziness, no more deception, no more slander, no more conflict. Those things will be gone. They're all going to pass away. And we will inherit the kingdom of God. Eternal life will be ours. We will see Jesus face to face, behold the radiance and the beauty of his glory. We will do good and satisfying work. We will be given new bodies that will never wear out. All of our tears will be wiped away. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. This is where human history is heading. And Paul says at the end of verse 14, it's all to the praise of his glory. I said earlier that theology, the study of God, should always lead to doxology, the worship of God. But our doxology should also flow from our theology. As author Jen Wilkin puts it, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Your worship of God will be limited by your knowledge of God. So Christian, fill your mind with these truths. Absorb them, personalize them, and delight in them. I want to close by sharing an illustration I hope will be especially encouraging to new Christians or possibly for Christians who, for whatever reason, even though they've been saved a long time, realize that there's just a lot that they don't know that maybe it seems like other people, other people around me, they're saved and they seem to just know a whole lot more than I do. I hope it's encouraging for all of us, but I hope it's especially encouraging for, for new Christians or, or Christians who um, are discouraged because of how much they don't know. I recently finished reading a book entitled In Order to Live, A North Korean Girl's Journey to Freedom. This book recounts the firsthand experience of Yeonmi Park when she escaped from North Korea as a teenager. Her story is gut-wrenching. It is profoundly tragic. What she has suffered in life is absolutely horrible. But her story is also very moving. Yeonmi Park describes how growing up in a totalitarian dictatorship she never even learned words for things like freedom or, or justice. 
She says that when she escaped across the border from North Korea into China, she says, I wasn't trying to find freedom. I didn't know what freedom was. I just knew that we didn't have food in North Korea, and I hoped that when I got there, I could find a full bowl of rice. She wasn't motivated by an idea of freedom. She just, that's what was motivating her, was hunger. There was entire words and categories, concepts. She had no category for them. When she eventually escaped to South Korea, she realized that she was severely behind in just about every area of human development. She was drastically behind her peers in academics, in social skills, and even language. Through rigorous study, she tried to catch up as fast as possible. And in doing so, she discovered a love for reading. He reflects, I found that as I read more, my thoughts were getting deeper, my vision wider, and my emotions less shallow. The vocabulary in South Korea was so much richer than the one I had known. And when you have more words to describe the world, you increase your ability to think complex thoughts. I was starting to realize that you can't really grow and learn unless you have a language to grow within. Troy County, when you have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, which is Colossians 1.9, you quickly discover that you too are living in a very different world. All of a sudden, you have all of these terms that in your old life, they would have been empty of the significance that they carry now. Terms like redemption and election and predestination, grace, mercy, and the gospel. You may feel like everyone around you knows so much more than you. you. They know this stuff. You don't have a clue. But take heart. Words like these can lead you into a stronger, more vibrant relationship with your Savior. It doesn't matter where you are right now in your understanding of theology or biblical doctrine. Commit yourself to increasing in the knowledge of God as best you can, but study with a purpose. Let your purpose be that the more I learn about my God, I want this knowledge of God to be the fuel for my worship of God. Your study, you study with a purpose to fuel worship to God and really mean it from the depths of your soul. The natural impulse with a supernatural, spirit-inspired impulse of believers is to erupt in worship to God who out of pure love and sheer grace has showered them, has showered us with every sort of spiritual blessing. All glory to God. God, we pray that your worth, your greatness, and your goodness would be exalted in our midst and in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.